And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will be called will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his holy and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Father, as we open up your word, as we consider the meaning of Advent, as we prepare our hearts to this week, celebrate the coming of Christ and long for His return. We just pray that You would turn our, our hearts fully towards Him. That we would not be like those that, that Mary sang about in that Magnificat, those whose hearts are scattered because they're proud. But Lord, that we would be those who receive mercy because we fear You. We thank You, Lord, that You sent Your Son. We thank You, Lord, that, that Christmas is a, is a time each year that, that we can be reminded of that in ways that, that are unique because the whole world around us is, is looking. Even when they don't know it, they're looking at the birth of Christ. I pray that You'd encourage us this morning with what His coming means, both now and in the future. And help us to live in light of that reality that Jesus, the King, has come. So speak to our hearts through Your Word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, first of all, let me just say, Merry Christmas to all of you. This is very strange. There's this whole empty space in front of me here. Nobody wanted to get spat upon, apparently, this morning. I don't spit, I promise. Merry Christmas to all of you. It's good to see you, and I do hope that this week is a, just a wonderful celebration for all of you. Uh, it's good to see some faces that we haven't seen in a while back. I see you guys back there. Hello. Um, so it's good to celebrate uh, this week. The last three Sundays, we've, uh, we've been in this Advent series, and, and, and if you've been with us long enough, you know we've been studying the book of Philippians over the last several months. We decided that we would concentrate on a couple of verses in Philippians chapter 3 as we explore and celebrate what Advent means and accomplishes by focusing on the promises of those two verses. Those two verses are Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. And what we've said is this. We've said, because of Christ's Advent, meaning this, meaning because He came and because He will come again, we who are in Christ by faith are citizens of heaven, and as citizens of heaven, we await the full saving power of His coming again when we will be given new, transformed, 
resurrected bodies like the one that he has now, even as we recognize that we've already been given new hearts by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit through the cleansing power of the Gospel. And this morning, we're going to wrap up this Advent series by seeing that all of those things, those three things that I just mentioned, are promised and made possible because of what's said at the end of verse 21. It's by the power that enables Jesus even to subject all things to Himself. You're citizens of heaven. You're awaiting His return where you will get these new and glorified bodies where we will be like Him all because of a power that He has that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. That's one of the most encouraging. It's certainly one of the greatest truths in the Bible. Right? If you really think about that, that, that this, this, this King of ours, this Savior of ours, has this power to subject all things to Himself. It's a great and encouraging truth because we live in a world that's filled with danger and tribulation. We live in a world that's filled with abuse and oppression, poverty and despair, sickness and death. And so we have these promises that Jesus will make all that right. We have this expectation, this hopeful expectation that Jesus both has the power and the will to subject all things to Himself. He has the power and the will to do it. And I think that's what what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he writes in Romans 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. The New Testament is replete with references to Jesus' unrivaled authority and His subjecting power over all things. All things. And that includes all evil. Both in the earthly and in the spiritual realm. And even over evil's most formidable threat against us. Death itself. The authority of Jesus, as we'll look at here this morning is anchored in two sources of legitimacy. Two sources. Here's the first one. The first is simply because Jesus is by nature God. He has this authority and this power to subject all things to Himself just because He's God. That's who He is. And as God, He rightly stands over and above all that He created. John 1, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is who He is. Jesus, the Word of God. And all things were made not just by Him, but everything exists for Him, and it's because of Him that they maintain their existence. Colossians 1. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Jesus' power and authority are rooted in and legitimized by His very nature as the one 
the one and only Son of God, who is the Creator, the Maker, and the Sustainer of all things. Colossians 2, John 3, Matthew 28 echo these same truths. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. But he who comes from heaven is above all. And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Christians, this is good news. We have this confidence knowing that Jesus came and that he has this authority, that, that he proclaims that all this authority has been given to him. We, we have this good news that, that tells us that when he comes again, and he will come again, to finally subject all things to himself, he is well suited to exercise that power because he has the right to do it. He has the right by very nature of the fact that he is God. And by that power and by that nature and by that authority, he can and he will put his foot on the neck of Satan and all evil once and for all simply by his raw divine power. That's who he is. He doesn't have to earn that right. It's belonged to him from all eternity. And that is the first source of legitimacy for Jesus' power to subject all things to himself. He's God. There's a second source of legitimacy that we'll look at here too. And this, this source of legitimacy is, is a little bit different. This one, by the Father's decree, is something that Jesus has actually earned. And I just said he didn't have to earn the right as creator. He is God. But there's this other source of legitimacy that he has earned. Hebrews 2, verse 10 says this, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. John Piper puts it like this. He says, God the Father decreed that it would be most fitting, appropriate, beautiful, good, and right for the one who rules the world of fallen humankind and everything that relates to humans in their suffering would be the one who bore their likeness, who endured their temptations, suffered their pain, and died their death. God decreed that the one who would rule in power would be a redeemer who suffered with us and for us in this world. God declared that the Lion of Judah, when He comes in power and great glory to bring judgment upon the earth, will have been a lamb slain for sin on that earth. That's from Revelation 6. The Lord and Judge and Savior over all of the universe was tested and found perfect through human suffering. And now He's doubly suited then for this role as Lord of the universe. He is God with natural rights, and He's Redeemer with purchased rights. He can put His neck, or excuse me, He can put His foot on Satan's neck 
Not just because of his raw divine power, which would have been enough, but also because he exposed himself to Satan's temptations and to his final weapon, death, and broke it by the resurrection. So he's doubly suited to rule. He has creator rights and he has redeemer rights. And because of those two things, all that has been said about the power of Jesus Christ to subject all things to himself gives us a remarkable and unshakable sense of hope that every promise of Philippians 3, 20 and 21 will be fulfilled. Everyone. Fellow believers, this morning we can know that because of His unmatched power, our citizenship in heaven is secured. Our expectation of His return is assured. And our own present and future transformation with new hearts and glorified bodies is ensured. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us, then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Amen and hallelujah. This is the King that we celebrate. This is Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time, and He is ours and we are His. He has the power to subject everything under His authority. That's good news. For believers, that's great news. But I want you to know this too. It's not just this sort of future-minded thing. It's, it's not just this eschatological promise that when He comes back, He's going to subject all things to himself, and therefore it doesn't, it doesn't affect anything about the present. It doesn't affect anything about the way that we live now, because it does. These are not truths with implications only for the future. They do affect the way we live now. And I'll point you back to a verse that we've come to over and over again as we've studied through Philippians. Remember Philippians 1.27 when Paul says this to the church. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of this gospel. In other words, live in light of these realities. So when we hear that Jesus has the power to subject all things to himself, and that gives us hope and assurance that, that our citizenship in, in heaven is, is certain, and, and, and we're going to have these new bodies, and we're going to have this expectation that he's going to come back, we have to live, we can live, in light of those realities. Now, I know in saying that, it brings up this, this sort of objection, or at least this sort of hesitation. Because certainly we look around us and we wonder, what is the present significance of Jesus' subjecting authority? What does that mean now? Where do we see that in the world? I mean, our lives are still full of danger and tribulation. Our lives are full of abuses and oppression, poverty and despair, sickness and death. These things that Jesus promised to liberate us from. We have them still and they surround us. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. 
And for many of us, those present realities are felt more deeply and more regularly than for others. And some of you are, are thinking, amen, right? So as such, we can relate, and we do relate, to the author of the book of Hebrews who wrote this. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Why not? This is an important thing for us to know. So hear this. The reason why we don't yet see all things in subjection to him is because in the unfathomable wisdom of God, and I, and I, and I, can't, I can't overstate that, it's unfathomable, <laughs> this wisdom of God. We can't comprehend it or fully understand it, but in that wisdom, the process of subjection goes on at the pace that he chooses. It's happening. But it's happening at the pace that he chooses. He's patient. And in that patience, he's exercising grace to tarry, to wait, to delay, to, 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 to sort of build this anticipation for the sake of of all of those whose names, present and future, who are written in the book of life. I've said this many, many times in talking about the coming of Jesus and, and why, why, is it, why hasn't it happened yet? And, and why, why do we wait? Why do we, why do we have to endure? And the answer to that question is because God has people, elect, chosen sons and daughters that have not yet come in. And that's been true for 2,000 years. And if he hadn't waited for 2,000 years and none of you were born, you wouldn't be included, right? He tarries for the sake of all of those whose names are written in the book of life. That's one reason. The other reason is this. It's to separate the wheat from the chaff. This is, a, this is an important verse here too. Romans 9. What if God, desiring to show His wrath, and to make known His power. We just talked about this power that Jesus has to subject all things to Himself. When He comes back, He will, he will put down all evil, right? He's got this wrath reserved for the unrighteous. What if, desiring to show His wrath and to make this power known, He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Why is God tarrying? Why is Jesus waiting? Because there's a mercy, there's a love, there's a ministry to those of us who long for Him, even as we wait in the midst of a world full of oppression. Jesus is currently exercising his power and authority in a way that runs counter to the power structures of this fallen planet. Think about that. He's got all power, and yet the way in which he's choosing to unfold it in patience and mercy and grace, it's counter to the power structures of this world. If you were here on the first Sunday of Advent, that was December 1st, 
I know a lot of you were gone because that was Thanksgiving weekend, but if, if you were here, you might recall that I said then that it was no mere coincidence that the King of Kings, the King of Kings, first advent was inaugurated in a manger. By coming as a baby in a manger to material, poor parents, Jesus demonstrated that the world's definition of power is backwards. He demonstrated that the pathway to real power, to true power, is through weakness. Through humility over pride. Through meekness over dominance. Through servanthood over self-glory. Jesus' first advent rewrites the script to reveal that his means of subjugation is one of love and is offered in hope to those who will identify with him in suffering. And so there's two kinds of people for whom the all-subjecting power of Jesus will be exercised. For some... His power is a liberating and saving force. And for the others, it will bring wrath, judgment, and a complete undoing. The question for us to consider this morning is, which kind of person am I? That's why at Christmas time we look back to the longings of ancient Israel and we find solidarity with them in a yet unrealized hope. The birth of Christ certainly ushered in a new reality. And in that new reality, this hope was partially fulfilled. It will be fully realized and experienced only for those who take up their own cross and follow Him. So I had Albany read from Luke chapter 1. Those are the the prophetic words of Mary. We call it the Magnificat. And I want you to remember that prophetic song which she sang when she, when she heard from the angel that, that she would be the one who would give birth to the long-awaited messianic child. It's a song of hope and it's a song of longing. A selection of verses from the middle of that song. She sings, And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. This was the the hope. This was the promise of Advent. This is what the Messiah would accomplish. And if we believe that Jesus will accomplish all of these things, we must also believe this, that He is already at work to display these realities in and through His chosen people. So I I said there's this question that we have to ask. Which kind of person am I? 
Which kind of person am I? Dr. Jules Martinez up at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School wrote up this short Advent devotional recently, and, and I got a chance to hear it read by him. And he, and he did it on these very verses from the Magnificat. And he mentioned that the Advent inaugurates change in the world on three levels. There's a theological level, there's a political level, and there's an economic level. And if you look at those verses on the screen behind me, you can easily see those categories in Mary's song. The theological level is simply this. It's the revelation of God. He reveals to us who He is. This Messiah reveals to us what He's like. And He reveals Himself as a God of mercy to those who fear Him. Those who fear Him are the ones who recognize that this subjecting power of His is good precisely because it's merciful. And so they humble themselves before Him. And in their humility, they seek to become like Him in merciful goodness towards others. The proud, on the other hand, to the proud, Christ is revealed as a God with a strong and mighty arm. Their thoughts are deceived. They think themselves to be worthy of their own glory. They think themselves to be godlike in their own power. They look to all other human beings as, as of secondary value and worth and dignity. That's what it means to be proud. And if that's an apt description of you, Christ the righteous judge will scatter you. There's a Johnny Cash song that I like very much, and it goes like this. It says, God's going to cut you down. Which kind of person are you? The political level speaks even more broadly to this contrast between the humble and the proud in the ways in which they live within the larger society, the larger structures of society. Dr. Martinez writes here, he says, the rulers and the powerful are the ones who rely on their power, the ones who rise above others and in doing so, oppress them, crush them. This social ethos seems to be also a condition of our times. As a society, we've created a mode of existence where everything tends to be resolved by force. Everything tends to be interpreted under the logic of imposition. We build this world where everything is in competition. Where no place for the smallest, the sick, the marginalized. No place where the so-called losers can live and deploy their worth. Yet in contrast, Mary discovered that the hand of God acts very differently. God acts as grace and agape love for those who are lost at the bottom of the earth. That's why she reverses the old perspective here in her song. She looks at history from below, from the impoverished, the defeated, the crushed. And she knows that this history changes because God dethrones those who sit on the throne and he saves in the unity of fraternal solidarity and universal love the humble of the earth. Which kind of person are you? 
The third level is economic. And again, we see a contrast between the rich and the hungry in verse 53. And here, Dr. Martinez writes this. He says, The rich are those who more often than not settle their lives in the goods of the earth. Settle their lives in the goods of the earth. They seek their safety in having, in enslaving, and oppressing those who cannot succeed by the same logic and who therefore go away hungry. But Mary stands among those poor. With them she feels with her eyes and she discovers the presence of a transformative and righteous God who fills them with goods. Then from the bottom a new humanity emerges. A people who do not oppress others. A people who no longer ride the thrones. People who don't take wealth as a form of domination, but rather as an expression of love. As a sign of encountering others in sacrificial generosity in order to build a shared human table. Which kind of person are you? Many of you, I know, know the longing and the poverty that Mary speaks of. And for you, Advent is a season of hope. It's a season of hope. It's this proclamation of a promise that the subjecting power of Christ is a liberating force that has upended the power structures of the world and has firmly set its salvific sights on you. On you. God gives grace to the humble. And your vindication is coming if you patiently trust in Him. To those of us, and I'll include myself in this category, to those of us who have power and privilege and material means, Advent is a reminder that God has inaugurated a new ethos in which our call is to subject ourselves to His authority and to use His rich blessings for good in love as Jesus did. Remember the Apostle Paul here in the book of Philippians pointed us to that mindset in Philippians 2, 5-7. to He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. Have this mind among yourselves. And for those who remain in their pride, those who are unwilling to accept the authority of Christ, Advent is a warning. Because He came, He will surely come again. And if Christmas for you is just another opportunity to accumulate more stuff, an opportunity to glory in yourself by ignoring the humility of Jesus Christ who was born in a stable in order to die on a cross, then you'll be scattered. You will be brought down. You will be sent away empty. He will return or you will die 
And either way, you will kneel before Him and you will know with great terror that God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 9-11. through Jesus has the power and the will to subject all things to Himself. For those who fear Him, this is great news. It's vindicating news. It is hopeful news. It's Christmas time. It's Christmas time. And Christmas is for those who can sing with the church of all ages, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her King. Let's pray. Lord, it is great hope to us to know the power of Jesus. And it's, great, it's a great wonder to us to, to recognize that, that in His coming at Christmas, his, his birth, He did. He came as a baby. He came humbly. He came as a servant to seek and to save the lost. Lord, this is not the script that we would have written. It's not the script that we expected. We expected the second coming. We expected the the power and the majesty and the, the king on a horse. The immediate subjugation of all evil and the immediate establishment of a heavenly kingdom on earth. We we expected that. And yet, Lord, you showed us a better way. Not that that way isn't coming, but you showed us that that way runs through the cross. So Lord, we thank You for the beauty of Christmas. We thank You for the life of Your Son. We thank You for His death. That by His death, our sins would be forgiven. That by the new hearts that He gives to us, by His resurrection and the the, the indwelling of Your Holy Spirit in the lives of those who by faith trust in Jesus, we've been made to be humble. To be new people. To take up our cross and to follow Him. And so Lord, I I just pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. And for my brothers and sisters who aren't here. And Lord, just just ask that that You remind us this week that, that because He came and because He's coming again, we have an unshakable hope and we have a responsibility to live in light of that reality today. I pray that we would look like Him. I pray that we would depend on You as He depended on You. I pray that we would serve as He served and love as He loved and that we would, like Him, be a picture in this world that their power structures are backwards. Thank You for the beauty of what we celebrate. And thank You for the hope that we have in which we can sing joy to the world, the Lord has come.
Lord, let us receive him as our king. We pray that in his name. Amen.